0: All right, let's get this thing going. By the way, phones are open, 801-331-8113. If you are catching the live broadcast, you can be a part of the discussion, and I hope you will. 801-331-8113. Well, we are about to find out just how committed some people are to uh, their personal autonomy and to their personal independence. I say this because in my home state of Utah, Governor Gary Herbert has just held a press conference And he's saying we have the authority to mandate this as it regards to uh, making people wear masks in public. However, he says at this time, I choose not to make it a mandate. Governor Herbert says, I am going to give the people of Utah the chance to show the kind of people they are. That it's time to say for the good of the whole, we're going to comply voluntarily to wear face masks. Now, you probably want, okay, so what, what's the, are you going to go off on him here? Um, I do disagree with the governor that, uh, yeah, you have the authority to mandate that people wear masks. I, I think you're probably going to claim the authority, just like you claimed the authority to tell businesses you're essential, you're not essential. Or to tell people stay home or don't gather in groups larger than this. But I think it's pretend authority. I think you, I, how can I say this nicely? I think you're bluffing. I don't believe that the people of Utah have given you that authority. I don't think it's expressly delegated to you. And unless their legislature passes a law as the lawmaking body, it probably ought not be treated like some kind of a, you know, lawful edict and should be enforced like any other law. I think about some of the the edicts that came out requiring businesses to shut down, requiring people to distance into, you know, to not gather in groups so large. The wording was very careful. It was intended to convey that oh yeah, 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 this is official. And boy, you better do what we say or else. But it never came right out and said this is the law. Can you see the difference? It it's it's written in a way or it's stated in a way to make it sound like wow, you have to do this. There is no wiggle room, but in reality That's someone who does not have legitimate authority telling you to do it. Now, this is beside the point of whether, well, but Brian, masks save lives. I understand there are differing schools of thought on this. All I'm saying is, let's not get caught up in the fear of, well, you know, COVID cases are here. I understand that. Cases are higher. Testing has been higher. uh, Deaths are lower. Hospitalizations, I, I don't believe, have gone off the charts either. So let's ask ourselves, is it proper for government to mandate this sort of thing. I was just looking at uh, KSL television's Twitter account where they had posted this uh, statement from Herbert. We have the authority to mandate this, but I'm going to give you a chance to do the right thing on your own and show what kind of people you are. Listen to a couple of these replies. One of them says, "No, buddy. listen, you have given people the chance. They are not doing it. You've given them multiple chances over the course of months. They are not doing it and they won't until you tell them they have to. And by the way, that's one of the more reasonable responses. Here's another one. I think the people of Utah have shown exactly who they are. How many chances are we going to give these people? It's clear they don't give a damn for anyone but themselves. It's crazy. What this is bringing out. If you have to mandate it, you're not making the case to the people that it is necessary Do you understand that? And for those who are wearing masks, look, if it makes you feel safer, if it makes you feel like I'm doing, you know, what is in the interest of my health or other people's health, then I say do it. Here's the thing. Um, John Miltimore, a writer and one of the senior editors for fee.com. He says, look, if, if you go to a store and they say, look, put on the mask or you can't come in here. He says, really, this is the thing you should do. Either put on the mask or take your business elsewhere. Don't cause a scene. Don't sit there and yell at them, Don't, you know, I've talked to my lawyer and whatnot. You can stand up for yourself and you can stand up for your independence. Without having a fit and becoming Alex Jones and screaming at people and making a scene. And yeah, you may have to swallow your pride and walk away saying, well, I'm not going to be able to shop here. But it's their property. It's their business. It's their rules. That's the grown-up thing to do. Or you could put on the mask and go about your business. All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show.
2: Hello, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. How are you?
0: I'm, I'm OK. I'm a little bit concerned that I see this this negativity. Uh, Ray, I, I fear that those of us who, for reasons of just simply I, I don't want to comply, I don't want to jump on the bandwagon. I think we are about to find out what it is like to be a uh, a persecuted minority.
2: Yes. Well, I think some people should consider some things. I've been I've been doing some research and um, I'm driving now. You know, legally, so I have to just do by memory. I can't have a it all out in front of me. So let me see if, how good my memory is. But, um, but the pro Okay, so a lot of people wear scarves. You know, that doesn't do anything, um, but yet they're accepted. A- and in an operation room, I was told by a doctor that um, the reason they wear them in operation rooms is to keep sweat from Dropping into an open wound, and then creating a um, antibody response, or, or um, when they're talking, you know, and asking for different medical tools and stuff like that, they don't want any spit going in an open wound, creating a, a an immune you know antibody response.
0: I think um, I think in an operating theater where they're trying to create a sterile field. That uh, the this this is something that's totally understandable, but we're not all walking around with open wounds and we're not all doing surgery. And, and look, I I get it that for some people, it, the idea is, but it makes me feel safer, safer. And if it makes you feel safer, do it. But everywhere I go, I see people touching their masks, adjusting adjusting the mask, touching other things. Um, if if it's the panacea that, that some are leading it to be, um, you know, they should be able to make the case. But right That's now, there, there, are gonna... lot, there are a lot of people who are saying, I don't think it is, and I think it's their right to say, then, then I'm not going to wear it.
2: Yes, and they also have a plastic shield over their their face. Yep. And, and that also helps um, block some out, and it also helps them prevent them from uh, touching their mask, you know, because we, we put our credit cards into the machine, and we push the buttons, and, and every person does that, and they're not cleaned, and, and the virus stays on some surface a long time, and we're opening doors, and we're doing different things. So, and a lot of people reuse the masks, you know, and, and so if you're touching the mask, reusing them a lot, I mean, they're, they're not as effective as a lot of people think.
0: Right. I, it, here's, it, here's the bottom line, Ray. I really think that what it comes down to is people have got to stop waiting for someone to tell them what to do.
2: Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I've got a mask handy. You know, if I'm sick, I don't go outdoors. And if I get a little desert dry throat or something, you know, I have water to, you know, but I quickly put a mask on if I feel I'm going to cough, you know, and, and um, I do the distancing. You know, but I, I just think, I, I think we're being a lot of blind sheep and, and that, you know, there isn't blind, double blind studies proving that all these things work. I think political agenda here and maybe even a profit agenda here. And I don't like being used. I don't like being deceived. I like using my intelligence to know, you know, how a good way to protect my family my friends i i don't want to be you know um i i don't want to be doing things that hurts people on the other hand i don't want to be doing things that hurt myself or just turn me into a blind sheep you know
0: they're good um, well said well said and and i I'm not telling anybody. I hope this is clear. Just because I've I've made the choice that uh, I prefer not to wear a mask. I'm not telling you you shouldn't wear one either. But uh, for me, it's, it's something more than a matter of health. Back to the phone caller. Welcome to the show.
3: Hey, Brian. Sam calling. How are you?
0: Sam, I am well. We're going to go to break here in a few seconds, so I, I want you to stick around if you can. I, I want to get your take on this.
3: Yeah, I can do that.
0: Can I ask you All quickly, right. though, before the music starts... Did Governor Gary Herbert do the right thing for the citizens of Utah by not making it a mandate, or did he drop the ball, in your opinion?
3: Well, it should never be made a mandate, no matter where it is, whether it's Utah or wherever. Um, you know, one thing I, I have a saying, Brian, and I'll leave you with this for the break. Okay. Don't go where the masses do, because you'll probably go over a cliff and kill yourself. <laughs>
0: There's there is a, there's a there's something to be said about lemmings here. I'll have to think about it. We'll come back. Sam will be with us when we return. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Please stay with us.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right. Welcome back to the show. I have. Sorry, Sam, your name slipped my mind for a second. There. My friend Sam call, calling me from Missouri today. All right. Let's talk about this, Sam. I know that uh, you're not a fan of masks. I had to wear one yesterday for the first time just in, in the course of uh, going out and taking care of some business. And uh, I got to say, after an hour and a half, I I'm no more closer to thinking, yeah, that wasn't so bad. It's a, it's a mild thing. I don't think I can wear a mask.
3: Well, I'll tell you, uh, as I told you during the break, we're becoming a nation of lemmings, and uh, I always tell people that uh, if you go where the masses are, you'll probably fall over a cliff, because uh, the masses, you know, the Bible talks a lot about sheep, and no wonder they refer to, you know, sheep, you know, the people being like sheep, you know, because they all are so easily led astray. And this is a perfect case in point. Now, I will tell you one interesting thing. um, Uh, First of all, capitalize on what I said before I went into the the break a while ago, and that is number one. Um, What I mean uh, by that is that the masses usually don't make the right decision in mass. Usually it's it's a minority that think outside the box that wind up making more carefully thought out decisions, and that's something that I think, um, you know, this is where we find ourselves today. Now, one interesting thing, we do know a friend of ours that lives two doors east of us here um, in the neighborhood where we uh, live, and she uh, went to a doctor, and the doctor actually admitted to her when she brought up her um, idea of not having to wear a mask and not wanting to wear a mask, the doctor did admit that they do cut off oxygen. So there are some doctors that know what's going on. And I'm trying to get across to people, if you have any kind of a condition, particularly if you have anything like seizures and stuff like that, you know, like epileptic seizures and stuff, you better jump on this and get the skids cleared so that you don't wind up caught up in this, because that's all you need to do is have one of these things on and wind up in an epileptic seizure or something. So, Right.
0: Uh, right. Sam, thank you so much for your call. I, I I have an article here I want to share. This was on the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's titled "A picture is worth is worse rather than a thousand words." Ram- Ramon Ramon P. De Gennaro is the author, and I know many of you have probably seen this meme. This is the first time I'd seen it, but it's a popular link circulating on the internet that shows the result of a demonstration. Dr. Richard Davis sneezed, sang, talked, and coughed into agar cultures wearing a standard surgical mask, and then again using no mask. And the result is a pretty powerful image, and it's right there in the, in the article itself. It shows you what you get. The cultures without the mask clearly show more microorganism growth. So the strongly worded conclusion from the Post's author, wear a mask, that way lives will be saved. Now, Mr. DiGennaro says, okay, a picture's worth a thousand words, but a picture is not a good substitute for a thoughtful analysis. And he asks, does the image actually support the conclusion? Or even worse, is the image misleading, steering you to an incorrect conclusion? He says, indeed, Dr. Davis's own conclusion of his demonstration is considerably less emphatic than the author's. Here's what Dr. Davis said. A mask preventing your spit and breath from flying out of your mouth, even if it doesn't catch at all, will stop some spread of bacteria. And likely virus. Now there there are a couple things that need to be emphasized here. It will stop the spread of some bacteria in this demonstration and likely virus not seen in this demonstration. In other words, the 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 dishes the cultures that you're seeing do not show viral growth. They show purely bacterial growth. And why is this important? Because bacteria are much larger than viruses. So a test showing, well, the mask blocks bacteria doesn't actually give us any direct evidence that the mask would block COVID-19 or other viral infections like the flu. Now, that doesn't mean the demonstration is necessarily irrelevant for viral infections, but to inject a dramatic photo of bacterial cultures into the COVID-19 conversation, can we at least admit it's a little bit misleading at best? Masks may or may not be a good idea for you, but Captain Michael Doyle, the commanding officer of a coronavirus testing site, says the only mask that the CDC considers safe from you getting the coronavirus, the only way to actually prevent you from inhaling it, is the N95 mask. So based on Captain Doyle's statement, should we not bother to wear a mask? Again, the author says masks may or may not be a good idea for you, but... His statement is also potentially misleading, although Captain Doyle is absolutely correct. He's discussing whether the mask protects the wearer. So perhaps we should consider those around us. Do you remember what we were taught even before we attended elementary school? Cover your face with a tissue or handkerchief when you cough or sneeze. So returning to the sneeze image, a more informative demonstration of bacterial protection would be for Dr. Davis to compare a surgical mask with a simple handkerchief. Yet even that wouldn't give direct evidence of whether a mask protects either the wearer or others against a virus, because the demonstration, after all, uses bacteria and not viruses. So Ramon P. De Janeiro says, look, the point is not whether you should wear a mask or even whether someone should be allowed to force you to use a mask. By now, enough credentialed sources have weighed in on both sides of the issue, and you can ostensibly find reputable sources to support your opinion. He says, rather, the point is that you should think about that evidence. What does a story, demonstration, or test really say? Does it support the stated conclusion or advice? Does it even bear on your question, or is it simply irrelevant? And I love his last point here. You can always find someone willing to tell you what to do. With so much evidence on both sides of a question, you do better to think for yourself. And I'm echoing that call today. Based on what I understand and keeping in mind, I'm not a microbiologist or I'm not an epidemiologist. My understanding is there are some potential good things. There are some positives that could come from wearing a mask. I also understand there could be some negatives. So, my personal preference is I will not wear a mask unless I absolutely positively have to. Meaning, I'm going to avoid going places and doing things that would would require me to wear a mask. And that means that uh, maybe I'm going to be doing a lot less shopping. Who knows? Maybe it'll end up saving me money in the long run. But if you have seen evidence that makes you think, well, hey, I think that it's a good thing and that it will help me and maybe it will help others. See, here's the part that I'm rejecting. The idea that you you can only show that you're a good person if you wear a mask. I'm sorry, but that to me sounds very manipulative. That sounds to me like this is some kind of a psyop and the way that we can test who is on board, who has been assimilated by the Borg, is who is wearing a mask and who isn't. And those who aren't wearing the mask are likely to find themselves targeted, ostracized, isolated, and hounded with peer pressure and with disapproval and anger until they finally bend the knee and do what they're supposed to. So you have a choice to make. And maybe I'm wrong for, for putting it in, in this sense. But there are people who are working very, very hard to, to gain compliance And they're using every tool that they can. They're using guilt. They're using anger. They're using shame. They're using everything. Think of the children. Think of grandma. But the harder they push for that compliance, the more my spidey sense says, this is more than just about health. This is about seeing who is going to be obedient. And I will remind you, as others have said, obedience is not a virtue. Especially if you were being coerced into doing something against your better judgment. So I'm going to maintain my independence. And yes, my independence means I will not be wearing a mask. And some are going to see that as an act of open rebellion, which it is against that need to force my compliance. Why would I do such a thing? Is it because I want to spread disease and destruction everywhere I go? No, because I'm trying in my own small way to show that sometimes... You have to swim against the crowd and against the current in order to stand for your freedom and in order to keep government properly limited and not be assimilated into the board.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to welcome a special guest. I have Chris Harrelson joining me. He is the executive director of Prosperity Utah. Chris, good to have you on board.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian.
0: And, you know, I I get to talk to a number of uh, contributors to Young Voices. You are one of those contributors. Most of them are far flung across the nation. Uh, You and I actually uh, really aren't so far apart. You're in Salt Lake City. (laughs) I'm I'm just around the corner from you. I have you here today to talk about something which I think we might safely call a bright side from COVID-19, and that is how COVID-19 has revealed weaknesses in administrating health care.
4: Right. Well, if you look at the U.S. response to coronavirus, I think from left to right, we can agree that we have largely failed. We're going to disagree on where we have failed, on what we should have done better. But I think there's a large agreement in saying that uh, our response has been uh, less than perfect. Um, I think that that is largely because our system is too bloated, it's bureaucratic, it has too much government control. In our healthcare system, and had we been more nimble, had we had a more free market uh, system, we would have been able to save more lives when prevented with this, with this tragedy.
0: So, is is it the the fact that the healthcare system got shaken a little bit? Is that why people are willing to look at some of these shortcomings now and, and maybe make necessary adjustments?
4: Sure, I think so. If you look at how states responded across the country, and that's one of the. Uh, beautiful things in our American system is that we have, you know, 50 different states and they can act as different laboratories for different approaches to public policy. But a lot of them suspended taxes on medical devices. They suspended regulations that prevented healthcare from flowing from the provider to the consumer as quickly and efficiently as possible. Uh, And the question that I You know, I'm asking a lot of people are asking is, why did we have these regulations in the first place? Why did it take a global pandemic and now, you know, about 100,000 lives lost to realize, oh, our system is bloated, it's inefficient, and it's literally killing people because of that inefficiency.
0: You have a really interesting illustration in your column about um, how how you can uh, understand how big that administrative bloat actually is. Tell us about that.
4: Right. So if you look at your health care bill, the next time you get a health care bill, divide that by three. Uh, one third of all health care costs are due to the administrative state. So that one third goes to pay for your billing agent, insurance processor, compliance officers, things of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. That's what you're paying for. So if we were to cut that, and I think there's a lot of room to do so, we could, um, at least in theory, cut healthcare costs by one third or close to it.
0: Yeah, and this bears out. I remember, well, it's been four or five years now, but I remember a friend opening up a new office, a new doctor's office, bringing several different doctors and physicians' assistants and so forth into the practice. And the thing that blew me away was how many um, administrative people had to be brought in just to manage all of the different systems and paperwork and compliance with all all the insurance information. It, It was staggering.
4: Right. And I make this point in my column also. Administrators do not heal people. Doctors heal people. Physicians heal people. People who are trained in medicine, that is what we need more of. If you look at the growth of the administrative state, over the past 35 years versus the growth of how many doctors we have currently serving in the profession, the difference is astronomical. Uh, Administrative, um, the the number of administrative officers in our healthcare system has increased by 3,200% over the past 35 years, 3,200%. Compare that to 150% growth. So 3,200% growth in administrators but doctors and physicians, the people who are actually supposed to help us, who know how to do so, we've only increased that by 150% in 35 years.
0: Okay. Now, you say, though, that there is a fairly straightforward fix to this problem. What is that?
4: Right. So, 2017, uh, you may remember Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz had a health care debate on CNN. Uh, it was widely watched. Uh, but one of the few things that they agreed on was that there is too much administrative bloat. Too many regulations in the system. Ironically, Uh, I'm glad to hear Bernie Sanders agreeing there. Uh, Congress needs to take an immediate and a good hard look at where we can cut, so that we reduce the number of compliance officers that we need in order for healthcare providers to just remain compliant. Uh, That would do a lot to decrease healthcare costs.
0: Would there be? I'm guessing there would be pushback though. I mean, these are people's jobs that we're talking about. Surely somebody is going to say, hey, now, you know, I'm essential. I don't don't want to lose my job. Uh, Where are we likely to see the most? From what sector will we see the greatest amount of pushback against any reform?
4: Well, uh, you know, it's often said that there is nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. And I think that is true for uh, regulations as well. When you have, uh, you know, a new mandate come down. From the government, whether it be state, federal, or, or otherwise, you now have a new—you've just created a new special interest, a group of people whose livelihoods and jobs depend on that regulation or that that new code. So you're going to see a lot of pushback from that. You're going to see a lot of a typical hand wringing and oh no, the sky is falling uh, from you know uh, a lot of the same characters that you would expect it from. And that's fine. We've got to overcome that. We have to anticipate that. You know, a big reason why I wrote this article is because the left is often talking about what their solution is to healthcare. They say the healthcare system is broken. Nobody disagrees with that. People look at their medical bill, they weren't expecting uh, those numbers to be so high, and they say, I can't pay this. What am I going to do? And they're right. Over 60% of bankruptcies in the United States, all bankruptcies, originate from healthcare costs, unexpected healthcare costs. 60% of bankruptcies. So yes, our system is absolutely broken and it's far too expensive, but the left is out there talking every single day about what their solution is. We can do this differently, we can do that differently, but it means more government control in their mind. I don't hear uh, the the free market side or the pro-liberty side out there nearly as aggressively as the left is in saying, well, hold up, yes, the system's broken, but we have a much better remedy than what you're providing. And I think that for those, who, for those of us who favor capitalism and those of us who favor free markets, we have to be vocal. We have to say that we want to help people, that we love people, and that, yes, this is an injustice. We have the solution to fix it.
0: Chris, talk to us about uh, those administrative barriers and, and how reducing them could expand the amount of care what give me some examples of, of what to those administrative barriers look like and, and, and where they could come down
4: So two quick and easy ones the first one is expanding scope of practice so um, a nurse practitioner that is written in the code what they can and they cannot do they're trained they uh, have a lot of skills and expertise and they could conceivably take on more work uh, that a, a physician or a doctor, uh, is now mandated to do, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. So allowing nurses to take on more, um, you know, more responsibilities and other medical professionals, physicians, assistants, et cetera, uh, that is a legal regulatory change that we would have to make. Nine states this past session have considered changes uh, to expanding scope of practice to include Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Oregon, uh, a number of states. Um, so that's one quick fix that states could, can take right away. Um, the other one is certificate of need laws. They're aptly called con laws. <laughs> um, oh. uh, they, that, uh, what con laws are is um, when a uh, hospital or a medical provider need, wants to expand their practice. So that means just buy more medical equipment or open up another wing of their hospital. They have to go to the government, ask permission and uh, go through a review process in order to do so. You know, if you and I are running a business in any different sector and we say we want to expand, we're already licensed, we're already proven that, you know, we know what we're doing, we go acquire the, you know, the capital to do so, we make the investment, and we're able to provide greater service to our consumers. Not the case in a lot of states. Fifteen states so far have repealed their Certificate of Need laws, um, and we have, we have a long ways to go.
0: Okay, it's, it's very refreshing to hear you talk about market-based solutions, and I, I am wholeheartedly behind that. I think the market can answer a lot of these problems. Um, what is preventing or is there anything preventing Congress from acting on this now?
4: Well, what always prevents Congress <laughs> from acting? It's, uh, it's a question that we uh, ask ourselves often. No, uh, other than political will and just uh, writing the bills and then moving them through the House, Senate, and onto the president's desk, they can start right now.
0: Okay. Well, I hope, I hope that they take your advice, and I hope they get on this quickly. I will have a link to your article in the show notes, which I'll, which I'll put up at lovingliberty.net, and I encourage everybody to take a look at it. Chris Harrelson, thank you so much for spending some of your valuable time with us today. I hope we get the chance to talk again soon.
4: Of course. Thank you, Brian.
0: All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills. This is The Brian Hyde Show. We have much more to discuss. We'll be back just the other side of these commercial messages.
1: is the brian hyde show the brian hyde show
0: hey welcome back to the show lines are open 801-331-8113 well i gotta say um chris harrelson was a uh, breath of fresh air and I don't know if you've thought much about healthcare. I know most of us. I think most of us have kind of stayed away from the doctors, right? Even if you needed to go. I one thing that I think about is when when the whole COVID nineteen thing kicked in, and you know they started doing the lockdowns, and everybody was panicking, and there was no toilet paper to be found anywhere. I happened to get a badly infected ingrown toenail. Now I've struggled with this for years, and. I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty good at doing that self-surgery on my toe, and I can fix it. About every every month or so, I make sure that my toenail is doing fine. Well, I waited just a little bit too long, and I started to get an infection. And I was like, ah oh, crud! Everything that is elective is being told, don't come to the hospital, don't you know, go to uh, you know even Instacare because you know we're trying to save all of our medical infrastructure for people who are struggling with COVID. And I seriously had to stop and think, man, what, how far do I let this go before I'm willing to say, okay, it's an emergency. I don't want to lose my toe. I don't want to lose my leg. I don't want to get blood poisoning or something. But, uh, you know, thankfully, we worked it out. Thanks to my vast medical knowledge and a little bit of good luck and some Epsom salt, uh, we got the thing worked out. But I know I'm not the only person who actually sat back and went, I don't want to have to go to, to the doctor, even if I really need to. And this is one of the other uncounted costs that that comes along with as we're flattening the curve. How about the people who had you know cancer or suspected they might have cancer, but nonetheless put it off because well I don't really want to go get that mole checked out uh, because you know we got to save those hospital beds or save the doctors for people who are really sick. In the meantime, melanoma is spreading through their body or something. I mean, I don't know. There are trade offs, so I I just. I'm just saying that uh, the one-size-fits-all approach really doesn't seem to work. But the people who are sitting in positions of authority seem very determined that one-size-fits-all is how we have to do this. And I don't know if it's out of a sense of fairness or just out of a sense of that's how we can be sure that we're really in control. Now, let's, let's apply this to something that isn't even COVID-19. Let's talk about TikTok. I am old enough and uncool enough that I have never, ever used TikTok. My kids know all about it, so if I want to get informed on it, I'll go to them. Hey, what what can you tell me about TikTok? Well, apparently, the Trump administration has announced that it may follow India's lead and ban the TikTok app for Americans. Jeffrey Tucker has an article on the American Institute for Economic Research's website, AIER.org. And it's very interesting to read about. The the takeaway here isn't so much, uh, you know, uh, well, gee, you know, maybe maybe government should step in and save us again. It's more along the lines of is there anything that politics can't poison to the point that uh, that it ruins it for everybody? Jeff Tucker says, you know, as far as banning TikTok for Americans, he says there is some sense in this in which this seems inconceivable, rather. He says, so far, the protectionism frenzy on the part of the Trump administration has bypassed software products, at least until, after, until they went after Huawei, which at least offers a physical product. But TikTok is just pure digits. It's a platform that seems silly. Jeff Tucker says he could stand it for a couple of days only, but it actually has inspired tremendous artistic creativity among the young generation. Now, you couple that with a bunch of young people with time on their hands, like you have seen since the lockdowns, and the use of TikTok in the U.S. has exploded. Can't go to school, can't go to the park, can't hang at the mall. What else to do but dress up as a large fuzzy shark and filter a dance through a wacky mirror lens? No, it actually kind of makes sense. Jeff Tucker says the threat alone is all the talk among young people. And by the way, among the young people, there is nothing but outrage. Take away TikTok and there will be riots all over America, starting in the living rooms and spilling out into the streets. If this administration is trying to court the youth vote, he says this is not the best way to go about it. And for that matter, parents have come to love this app because it keeps the kids busy with creative, harmless, and more or less clean fun. So, why would the administration want to ban TikTok? Well, it cites security concerns. Right? Aren't we supposed to regard China as an enemy? I think there are those within our government who definitely want to maintain that, uh, that point of view. But TikTok denies these security, dis- c- security concerns, saying TikTok is led by an American CEO with hundreds of employees and key leaders across safety, security, product, and public policy here in the U.S., We have never provided user data to the Chinese government, nor would we do so if asked. So Jeff Tucker says more than likely the motivation to ban TikTok is purely political. In its dealings with China, the administration knows only one direction, and that is escalate. Its protectionist attacks, its slow march toward trade decoupling, its near-daily rhetorical belligerence, its suggestions that the coronavirus is entirely China's fault, as if there had never been a new virus before, has fomented anti-American feeling across the whole of China, and has fed a kind of anti-Western paranoia in China, which has a history of that sort of thing. Tucker says this breakdown in diplomacy has lost the U.S. leverage, even as Beijing moves to scrap what's left of Hong Kong's independence. Yes, the U.S. bears some large measure of blame for this. Even more bizarre, the administration thinks that the way to deal with this might be to attack Hong Kong's special status. But to go after a playful app as a national security threat? That's an attack on the best thing about the new China, its innovative and enterprising economy. Why is the U.S., which is supposed to be a beacon of freedom for the world, banning and blasting a privately owned company that American kids adore? Jeff Tucker says it's always struck me as odd how the new wave of American protectionism targets goods, but not software and not services. With software, all apps live in the same store, no matter what country they come from. When you download an app, do you ask the question, am I buying American? Of course not. And that's the best feature of the app economy. It has thus far been free of nationalist politics. Changing that will be an enormous challenge that can only end in a loss of digital creativity and more escalation of international conflict and further push China toward an aggressive stance with its neighbors, if only to spite the Trump administration. It's all about bringing the poison of politics to a realm of innovation that has thus far been mostly and mercifully free of it. Jeffrey Tucker says, once we have to ask a politician's permission to download a playful app, we are going further down the road than we've been on for the last several months. A new frontier of political control at the expense of individual choice. And that right there speaks to me. And that is why, you know, as as stupid and ill-advised as I may seem on any given day, that's why I will make the stand that I make in so many cases. I'm willing to risk being unpopular. I'm willing to to risk being a pariah of sorts. To be out of step with the rest of the crowd. Because I want to stand up for individual choice. I want to stand against political control that is unreasonable or arbitrary or just ill-advised. I've seen other people do it and I admire their courage. I look at the people who paid the price ahead of us to secure what freedoms we have, our remaining freedoms. And I think it's we, we have to do justice by them. We can't just let this slip through our fingers and disappear. But the connection that I see very few people uh, making, or at least it appears few people are capable of making this connection, is that that's not going to be a popular or easy thing to do. Anytime you have to stand up for what is right, whether it is, you know, right or wrong, good or evil, or whether it's, uh, you know, standing up for individual freedom in the face of the collective, which is trying to assert its control and and its uh, its power over everybody within its grasp. It's going to be seen as a very unpopular thing to do. I think it's safe to say we have been conditioned and we are currently being conditioned to view our freedom as selfish Or at least our love of freedom as selfish. And if you stand up for and assert that, look, there are limits on what government should rightly do, there are limits to where people should be willing to step up and try to force somebody to do something, you're being selfish. You're the one who's being unreasonable. And I don't use this analogy lightly because I understand mental illness is a, is a very real challenge that a lot of people have to deal with. It's often out of sight and therefore out of mind and, and, and people don't understand how difficult it is. But I, I feel like we are approaching a point in our society right now where there is a mass psychosis that is taking hold. And the people who refuse to voluntarily embrace it and be a part of it are the ones that we are, are told are insane. We're told that they are mentally ill or they should be treated as if they're mentally ill. When in reality, it's the masses that are exhibiting irrationality and a loss of touch with reality. Okay, I'm saying what I'm saying in love. If you feel like I just called you crazy or cuckoo or anything like that, I'm really not. But my stand will be for individual freedom. Let that app be what it may.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show.